BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. The Bowery Boys, episode 162, The George Washington Bridge. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use offer code BOWERY. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And this episode's topic has been plucked from the headlines and has caused a bit of a scandal over in our neighboring state, New Jersey. Yes, where the state's governor, Chris Christie, has found himself in a bit of hot water, which we will get into at the end of the show. But first, we have a much more interesting story to tell, an undertold story, uh, the backstory of the George Washington Bridge itself. It's a suspension bridge, a double-decked suspension bridge today, but it wasn't when it was built. It's one of the most beautiful landmarks in New York, but I would also say it's an accidental beauty. Let's just say it wasn't supposed to end up looking like it does today. Let's just say the GWB is missing a few pieces. It's a little bit naked, shall we say. (laughs) But we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Oh, so you better buckle up as we take a ride across the history of the George Washington Bridge. That zesty little number is a piece that's actually called the George Washington Bridge, Mm -hmm. composed by William Schumann. So that's a beautiful piece. So now that you've sort of given us this instrumental introduction to it, right? maybe you could introduce us to the structure itself. 
I would be happy to. I will be introducing you to the George Washington Bridge, the fourth largest suspension bridge currently in the United States. When it was completed in 1931, it was the longest. The longest in the world or in the country? The longest in the world. Today, there are three suspension bridges in the United States that are longer. Michigan's Mackinac Bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge, and its brother in the Narrows, the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. The George Washington Bridge, or the GWB for short, hangs over the Hudson River, of course, linking New York and New Jersey. It's the world's busiest bridge in terms of traffic, in terms of automotive traffic. Mm. In 2013, it saw 102 million vehicles. It's the only overland connection between New Jersey and Manhattan. There are, of course, tunnels that make that same trek. And three additional bridges in Staten Island that link that borough to New Jersey. Now, why, of course, the GWB is unique as being New York City's only crossing over the Hudson. There are, of course, many other crossings over the Hudson River that are further north in New York State. The GWB has two levels of traffic that were completed at different periods here. Right, an uh, upper level and a lower level. The upper level having four lanes going to New Jersey, four lanes going to New York, so total of eight. Mm-hmm. And the lower has three going in separate directions for a total of six. 14 levels of automotive traffic. That's a lot. No wonder it can have 103 million automobiles on it. It's been maintained from the beginning by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Wait, going back to the 14 lanes of traffic, Mm -hmm. considering that all of the ones coming into New York from New Jersey have to pay a toll, it seems like this would become an extraordinary moneymaker for New York and New Jersey as well. Well, currently, if you are a, a single vehicle with less than three passengers Coming to New York, that is $13. That's the price mm. of a movie on Saturday night. That's right. To come into New York, so I guess that's okay. But it, it can be cheaper if you have an easy pass or if you're coming during off-peak hours, and it's always free to leave New York. You can go to New Jersey for free, yes. I should mention that the bridge on the Manhattan side exits into the neighborhood of Washington Heights, mm-hmm. and over in New Jersey, it enters off of Bergen County, specifically Fort Lee. And the roadway that passes over the George Washington Bridge is actually Interstate 95, I-95, along with being U.S. Route 1 and 9. So it's not an overstatement to say that this is one of America's most important roads passing over this bridge. And connections to the interstate highway system. Right. If you go straight across the George Washington Bridge, you connect seamlessly into Interstate 80, which just takes you all the way to San Francisco. I I drive that to get all the way back to Ohio when I go back to see my folks. It's just nonstop. Go up to the GW, turn left, go across it, and get off 500 miles later. <laughs> now, let's talk a moment about that name, right. because it went through several different names before it was. Uh, they finally settled on the final one. Some of the names include the Columbus Bridge, the Cleveland Bridge, which would right. have been named for Grover Cleveland, but would have been totally confusing since it's not in Ohio. But it did make sense since Cleveland had been born in New Jersey and was New York's governor at one point and then became president. Of sure, sure. A few names bandied about were the Rainbow Bridge, nice. the Pride of the Nation Bridge, okay. the Bi-State Bridge. How curious. <laughs> Not to mention Verrazano Bridge had been tossed out there. 
because, of course, the other structure wouldn't be built for many decades after. Mm -hmm. But they settled on George Washington Bridge because of a specific historical event that happened right here in this body of water and along the land. Essentially, this is the location of two Revolutionary War forts on either side of the Hudson. Fort Washington on the New York side and Fort Lee, named for General Charles Lee, on the New Jersey side. Right. This is a very patriotic location. These original forts were both used by General Washington during the Revolutionary War to protect New York and secure New York from British forces. Uh, They were built here because they were so strategically placed. You have to imagine how, how high, how elevated these positions are, both on the Washington Heights side and on the Fort Lee, New Jersey side. So whatever happened to the forts then? Well, in November of 76, the British would surround Fort Washington and, and force Washington uh, to retreat to Fort Lee across the river and then abandon it as they would basically chase him out of the state. So this was around the area of the Hudson where he, he and his men would have in fact retreated. How did he get over there? Well, they would have taken boats across and that was something that would remain in effect really until the George Washington Bridge would open in 1931. Ferries were the normal way to to get between New York and New Jersey. Ferries are still with us today, but they the were only thing, the way. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so depending on weather, depending, you know, if it was freezing outside, if the, if the river was frozen, you could wait and wait and wait for the boats be, to be able to cross sometimes hours to get back home. Mm-hmm. This also affected getting supplies over, getting groceries over, coal. There was a coal shortage one winter. You can understand why they wanted a bridge. Of course, many, many bridges had been built before the George Washington was open. Um, and so we focus so much attention on the bridges that connect the boroughs and connect the parts of the city to each other, including, of course, the Brooklyn Bridge, which opened in 1883, the Williamsburg, which opened in 1903, the Queensboro, and the Manhattan, which both opened in 1909. Mm-hmm. So these are major bridges that opened decades before the George Washington. But of course, what those have in common is that they're all bridging the East River, Mm -hmm. which is a far narrower body of water than the Hudson. Right. Although people had been trying to build and issuing proposals. In 1805, there was a proposal for a floating wooden bridge from Hoboken to 11th Street. A floating wooden bridge. I'm not sure how that... Avo- we'll have to look into that. Yeah, and that would probably <laughs> interfere with, with boats passing. A lot of things, I'm imagining, would be interfere with it. Uh, New Jersey passed a law creating a, a bridge company in 1868, which was to work together with New York State. But believe it or not, this is hard to believe, <laughs> but the two states couldn't seem to cooperate or get anything done. <laughs> So the, br- so, so the bridge project, right, went nowhere. I think that the governing officials realized that they needed something else. They needed another governing board to be able to step in here because politically it was so difficult to get these states to work together. And then to be fair, they do have national laws that govern interstate commerce. Right. So it might have been a little bit more difficult than we're making it out to be. A few decades later in 1895, there was a builder of railway bridges named Lindenthal, who we will get back to here mm-hmm. in a second, who broke ground for a new bridge that would span from Hoboken to 23rd Street. We mentioned this in our Penn Station podcast because he required all these railroad companies to chip in financially to this because they would all be using this bridge. And it would be one of the largest structures ever created in America at that time. So it was very costly. But wait, 
it only got bigger. He he just kept developing this plan from the late 1890s all the way into the 1920s. He kept pushing this idea and, and letting it grow to the point where Lindenthal's proposal for the Hudson River Bridge, as he called it, which would span from Weehawken to 57th Street by 1920, his plans for this was this giant double-decker bridge with a top level that had 16 lanes for traffic. Mm-hmm. 16. Just for cars, just for the automobiles. Right. And 12 rail lines on the lower level and with towers that were 840 feet tall. Taller than the Woolworth building, which was the tallest building <laughs> in America. So his And quite a bit taller than the current George Washington Bridge Tower. This was his life's dream. This was the one thing that he wanted to produce. I'm going to talk about we're going to back up with Linden Hall here in a second. But it's important to know that they, this was the man that was basically leading the idea of a Hudson River Bridge. But he was making them so big and so ambitious that the first thing that a lot of people saw here was the expense. But the second thing that they saw was this massive structure that <laughs> obscured their view of the skyline of New York. Well, because, it would have, yeah, it would have destroyed 57th Street. Well, and all of the blocks around it, because in order for the the bridge to be feasible, it would have had to have been so tall, right, for the ships to pass under it. The, the War Department mandated that it be a certain height so that there would be clearance. The elevation of 57th Street's very low, where on Weehawken, it's, of course, quite high. Right, and so the cars would have to get from way down there on 57th Street, way up. So they'd have to build all of these on and off ramps around destroying many, many, many blocks. So this was basically the big bridge project that was on the table. It had been developing, festering almost, if you will, for decades, <laughs> sitting there in the minds of people thinking about the Hudson River Bridge, most of them thinking, this will never happen. Tom, I'm very glad that you have already introduced our listeners to Gustav Lindenthal here, because he plays very strongly into the planning of the George Washington Bridge, although he did not make it. At the heart of this story that I'm about to tell you is a professional rivalry with a little some salty language, actually, some, some harsh words. The George Washington Bridge comes about during an extraordinary amount of construction that's happening in New York at the beginning of the 20th century. This would, of course, reach its zenith in the era of Robert Moses, but this is just before Robert Moses, most of our tale. Now, in 1921, with the approval of the U.S. Congress there, they now got them on board, was the formation of the Port of New York Authority, which today is the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. You know, As you mentioned, this was long overdue with the growth, especially of commerce and industry into New York Harbor. There were all these disputes between the two states that needed to be settled. Already, many new connections were made between New Jersey and New York within its first decade, including work on the Holland Tunnel, which that project was taken over by Port Authority. And of course, later there would be the Lincoln Tunnel, both of those underneath the Hudson River. But Port Authority's biggest project, of course, would be the George Washington Bridge, overseen by their chief engineer, Othmar Amman. Now, let me roll back the clock here for um, and properly introduce Othmar Amman. Right, right. Othmar Amman is the the central of this, character of this story. Uh, right. And and he was the head of the Port Authority? He was the chief engineer. Mm -hmm. Now, we've mentioned Mr. Amon before in a previous podcast, our Verrazano Narrows Bridge, but that was near the end of his life after he had built a great many bridges in New York City. We're going to start here with the very beginning. He arrived at Ellis Island in 1904. He came here from Switzerland, Schaffhausen, Switzerland in Mm -hmm. particular. When he arrived on the boat, he was 
a five foot five, 25 year old man and kind of non-imposing coming to America specifically looking for opportunities in American bridge engineering. He would, of course, eventually become an American citizen and would spend most of his life here. Here in New York and in surrounding cities, uh, he worked his way up through the ranks of various engineering firms with this a laser light focus here on long span steel structures. Like that's all he was really interested in. That, that he, he really was, was yes. determined, wasn't he? he? He came here only to make bridges, and then more specifically, just these long, <laughs> long span. Yeah. Steel bridges. I mean, it's suspension w- bridges. Well, that's why he, of course, became as successful and he is an iconic bridge builder because he made that decision early on in his life. And it made sense for him to come to the U.S., which was going through its own massive expansion and needed all kinds of bridges to be built. This was a big industrial boom time right. for bridges. Naturally, that would put him in contact at a certain point. And in 1910, he met. Gustav Lindenthal. Mm-hmm. Lindenthal was much older, but he saw in Amon a, a protege. Right. Here. And, and so this was while Lindenthal was in the process. He had already pitched in 1895 his first bridge. So now 15 years later, and he's still trying to get this bridge to happen. Well, he is actually working on a bridge that would finally be constructed over in the East River, the Hellgate Bridge. And it was on that project that he invited Amon to work on it with him. The Hellgate Bridge is that graceful arched bridge that hovers over the turbulent waters of the Hellgate, which is that choppy place uh, between Queens and Randall's Island. Construction on that bridge started in 1912 and was open for traffic in 1917. And Amon was on board for most of that as Lindenthal's first assistant. Now, during the war, no one was really spending a lot of money on bridges. But after the war, a lot of civic projects rose to prominence again. And people began talking about that bridge, that Hudson River, that they really were determined now to finally build it. It was at this period that Lindenthal really launches into a big campaign to have New York and New Jersey build his Hudson River Bridge, this gigantic bridge that right, you would up on Fifty Seventh Street. Now, initially, Amon worked alongside of him with developing this bridge, but imagine if you're Amon, this you know detail-oriented and incredibly intelligent, and a bridge builder and engineer on his way up very fast, and here you are, kind of latched on to this project that was too expensive and was kind, kind of, of absurdly spiraling, large, spiraling right? Spiraling out of control. On top of that, the business owners and homeowners around 57th Street were Mm. fighting back in the press, so it quickly became kind of an unpopular idea. Understandably. So he began pushing back on Lindenthal. Uh, He said, in fact, quote, GL rebuked me for my timidity and short-sightedness in not looking far enough ahead. He stated that he was looking ahead for 1,000 years. (laughs) So, so I don't, well, I don't quite a visionary. Re- read into that statement what you would like. That must be why there were sixteen lanes for traffic on the upper level. <laughs> why not forty um, for spaceships? <laughs> Almon eventually quit Lindenthal's office and came up with his own vision for a Hudson River Bridge, which he eventually unveiled in 1924. A far, far simpler much more streamlined bridge, mostly for cars and automobiles, four lanes for light rail in its original design, and and an absolute fraction of the cost of Lindenthal's bridge. I mean, it was so much cheaper. 
I'm intrigued to hear these details, but hold on a second. So the the apprentice has gone off and is now in competition with the master. Yes, we're we're now beginning to see two competing visions here. What Amon had, the sort of the key to his design was not necessarily the design itself, but the location of the bridge and where it would be located. Because instead of planning it in the heart of burgeoning Manhattan, he would move the bridge far, far, far uptown to an area that was far less developed and to two areas of land on the New Jersey and on the New York side that were much higher in elevation. Mm -hmm. And would thus be much cheaper because of that. And because they wouldn't have to build these expensive on and off ramps. So two powerful architects, two bold visions. So what's going to decide what gets built? Well, what decides anything in this day and age? Politics. Now, both of these architects were greatly admired by the two governors of the state at the time. Now, in New York, Governor Al Smith, but he's not going to be in this story much. We're going to focus on New Jersey's governor, George Silzer. We do like to talk about New Jersey's <laughs> governor on this show, don't we? If you find any parallels, you know, mm-hmm. it may not be an Purely accident. coincidental. <laughs> now, Silzer was a big project man. He was fascinated with this bridge concept. He would eventually prefer almonds, of course, because that is the bridge we have today. Not only was it cheaper, but Silzer actually had a political reason for choosing this. He was a Democrat, but he wanted to curry favor with the Republicans that he had to work with in New Jersey. Lindenthal's bridge would have torn into a heavily populated district in New Jersey of Democratic-leaning voters. Amon's bridge entered New Jersey in a highly rural, very unpopulated area of Bergen County that happened to lean more Republican. Mm -hmm. So what would happen is building the bridge there would create a lot of job opportunities and development in that area of New Jersey while not displacing too many people. That's funny. That's not at all what I thought you were going to say. I, I, I would have assumed that it would cause all kinds of mess and it would displace people and cause people's homes to be uh, no. uh, torn down. They actually embraced this because they saw, at least the people in this particular area of Bergen County, they saw the great potential for their land values to skyrocket, mm-hmm. which is in fact what did happen. Well, because suddenly there would be this easy way mm-hmm. for people to get into New York. So he signed on to Amon's idea. Lindenthal was naturally enraged. Listen to this quote. Mr. Amon has been my trusted assistant and friend for 10 years, trained up in my office and acquainted with all my papers and methods. But I know his limitations. He never was necessary or indispensable to oh. me. Now it appears Amon used his position of trust, the knowledge acquired in my service, and the date and records in my office to compete with me in plans for a bridge over the Hudson and to discredit my work. He does not seem to see that his action is unethical and dishonorable. Those are fighting words. (laughs) Those are fierce words words that would, of course, affect their relationship for the rest of their lives. They would, they would of course, be at public events together. They might right. even have to work together in other projects. And it, Right. If they're the city's prominent and preeminent bridge makers, um, it's not good that they're going at each other like that. No. So this bridge concept was pushed through both legislatures in 1925, then assigned to Port Authority. Then... Amon joined Port Authority in a newly created job of bridge engineer in July of 1925. And then Silzer, 
the governor. Well, after he left the governorship in 1926, then he became the chairman of Port Authority. Hmm. He clearly liked this project enough that he wanted to literally oversee it. So here we are in the mid-20s. We have the Port Authority with Amon and the governor of New Jersey yeah. on board. They've gotten the approval to go ahead with uh, the construction of this new bridge that would be farther uptown. Mm-hmm. So what happens next? Well, he began assembling an all-star array of icons of bridge making. Um, the most notable among them was actually not someone who was associated with bridges, but actually some of New York's most classically beautiful buildings. The architect Cass Gilbert, uh-huh, the legendary of architect of the City Beautiful Movement, and of course, the Woolworth Building. Now, when I think of Cass Gilbert, though, I think of Beaux-Arts-style facades with intricate details and a statue here and there. That's not exactly what we yeah. see in today's... Ornamentation, bridge, right. right. I would not. I don't even think of the George Washington Bridge as having any ornamentation, right? No. Well, the original plan here was that Amon would, of course, create the function, but Cass Gilbert would provide it with the form. That this steel skeleton that would be at first built in the Hudson River, um, would be encased in this concrete shell, or concrete, like a covering or something, that would use these fanciful designs by Cass Gilbert that would create a structure that was twice the size of Brooklyn Bridge, but has that same gothic, theatrical feel about it. The approaches up to the bridge and off the bridge would have assemblage of European-style statuary that would be hovering around as cars would drive gracefully into the bridge, and going over the bridge would almost almost be like a cathedral. Well, you know how you feel when you're walking on the pedestrian walkway on the Brooklyn Bridge and you pass under those giant arches and you look up at the ornamentation in awe. It would be a very similar experience, except those towers would be twice as tall. Can you imagine? And we have to imagine because it didn't happen. We'll let you know why after the commercial break. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. And now... Back to the show. So they broke ground for the construction of the George Washington Bridge in October of 1927. The bridge would open on October 25th, 1931. So just four years later. It was projected to be finished in 1932 with a budget of $60 million. It was finished in 1931 and came in under budget at a mere $59 million. It came in a million dollars under budget with a and little, ahead of schedule. a little money to take the gang out for dinner afterwards, mm-hmm. I guess. I just can't get over that it only took them four years to build this thing. I mean, it took that long for them to repair the escalator down in my <laughs> subway station here at East Broadway. But you know, this is kind of a hallmark of Almond Projects. He was known for getting things in early. Right, he was Swiss. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when talking about the construction of the bridge, you know, where do you even start? Let's 
say that first you build the foundations and then the towers and then you build the anchorages where they're going to like put the cables into the ground and anchor them in. Then you string the main cables. There are four main cables of the bridge. And then you string steel suspension wires down from those main four cables. And finally, you build the roadway and then afterwards the sort of support roads and things. So the easiest part was building the foundation on the New York side because it was already there. They built it on rock that's down on a part of uh, the rocky shoreline called Jeffrey's Hook. The Jersey side was harder because the bridge comes right up to the Palisades and there isn't ground beneath it. The foundations had to actually be laid in the Hudson itself. Now, unlike the Brooklyn Bridge, which used caissons, which we talked about a lot in the Brooklyn Bridge show, uh, the George Washington Bridge used coffer dams to block water and to allow construction uh, without that sort of pressurized cabin uh, caisson madness, which led to people having, you know, these sicknesses like the bends. Um, these coffer dams were less dangerous, although having said that, we, sh- we should note that there was an accident during the construction of the Jersey Side Foundation in which a dam broke or mal- malfunctioned and three men below drowned and died. In, in total, I'll add that 12 men would lose their lives during the construction of the bridge, which today seems like a very high number, but at the time was seen as very low. So you've got those foundations built. It's time to build the towers. That's right. The towers could now rise above them. Each of these two towers is made of 16 steel columns and big pieces that were welded together on shore and then brought out in barges and lifted up into place. The New York and New Jersey towers were constructed in parallel. At the same time, two different teams of construction workers kind of racing each other (laughs) in a good-natured race to see which state would win. But I can't help but think of how glorious and beautiful that would have looked uh, to see these two rising towers parallel to each other, disembodied from any other purpose. Right. They're amazing photos. I'm Mm -hmm. sure you're going to be putting them on the blog. Once the towers are in place, then there are the anchorages to put in place. Again, the New York side was easier because there is land right there. You can see it today. It's, a, it, it's this massive structure. It was the largest concrete structure in the world when it was built. 260,000 tons of concrete were used to build this Anchorage. Don't you feel like I always? I feel like we've, we're always talking about large concrete objects on this show. It's yeah. nice to throw out these exclamations. <laughs> yes, this was the largest <laughs> concrete structure in the world when it was built. The New Jersey side, interestingly, didn't have the same kind of anchorage because the the cables would be anchored directly into the Palisades, into the rock, into the earth, into the earth and the rock itself. They had to excavate the rock in order to build the bridge and and to make it level. So they excavated 200,000 cubic yards of rock. (laughs) Anyhow, the the anchorages were actually carved into the rock and they were accessed through a sort of hollowed out cavern. We have the anchorages, but we have no suspension bridge without the wires here. That's right. And if you look at the George Washington, you will see that there are four main cables, two on both sides, and they go from one anchorage. Let's just start on the New York side Mm -hmm. because we can see the anchorage. Yeah. Go up to the first tower and then swoop way over the span of the bridge, up to the next tower, and then over it and into the Palisades where it's 
anchored on that side. Those cables are huge. They're made up of a single strand cable carried back and forth across the cable 61 times. The finished cable, when that conglomerate of cables is bundled (laughs) together, is so big it's three feet in diameter. Wait, so of the four cables, each one of them is 61 strands. Well, hold on. Inside each strand is 434 (laughs) wires. And each of those wires is anchored as well. Okay, well, and by the way, the wire was made by the Roebling Company. You mentioned the Roeblings. Well, the Roebling Company was very powerful, and they were also based in New Jersey. So they were often given preferential treatment. And it just seemed right, you know, to have the Roeblings making cable. And then off of these giant, you know, four cables, you had the suspender cables that held up the pants. Or rather, it held up the, the roadway. So large parts, just like the tower, large parts of the roadway were floated out on barges, and then they were hoisted up into place um, and connected from side to side. They met, thankfully, in the middle, and, and we had our roadway. Do you note that I said roadway? Roadway. Single roadway. Right, because it was only when the bridge opened, and for the first couple of decades, there was only one roadway. There was the, what is today's upper roadway. As we said, it had six lanes of traffic um, on its only level, and everybody celebrated, you know, on October 24th, 1931, when it opened, except perhaps, to a certain degree, Mr. Amon himself, who looked up at these steel towers that we see today and we think are so beautiful, and thought, it's not finished. Oh, right. I I almost forgot our big hook here. Whatever happened to the Cass Gilbert piece? I assume at this time they just assumed that these Cass Gilbert structures the were facade. Well, the facade was going to be now added on to the, the bridge. encasing. Right, Amon was still pushing for it when construction began. The stock market, however, crashing in 1929, through you know a certain financial insecurity into the mix here. And they realized that the structure was strong enough without those encasings um, because they would, you know, the facade would keep it also structurally sound. Mm -hmm. It would give a certain amount of stability. Planning for that facade to be on the building, he had chosen steel that was exceptionally wide and except the beams were, were so massive because they had to support the concrete of the decorative dress, if you will. <laughs> they thought they were going to be covered, right. right? They're not holding that up. And I believe I read somewhere that it could it holds only about 20% of the total weight that it's, it has the potential to do. And to frame it another way, he could have gone much more lightweight with mm-hmm. those steel beams and still had a bridge that was structurally sound. So the George Washington Bridge opened, as you said, on October 24th, 1931. That opening party was, of course, insanely festive. There were 5,000 people on the bridge who were invited to the official ceremony, but there were thousands and thousands on either side of the bridge. So literally tens of thousands of New Yorkers and people from New Jersey were at this event. There was a parade of thousands that then marched onto the bridge. According to the New York Times, several women fainted during the ceremony. Naturally. Um, Among the dignitaries that were there were New York Governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And of course, Amon and Lindenthal were there. They got the greatest amount of applause when they both had to stand up. And I can't imagine that there were a little bit of tension, perhaps, in that moment. Well, who was not there was the mayor of New York City, Jimmy Walker, who was at a 
NYU football game. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, he was at an NYU football game. The following day... <laughs> Find that odd? I'm stunned. The following day, the first day over in your vehicle, 56,000 cars shared that privilege. Vehicles backed up for miles to get the chance to be to drive over. And of course, and nothing has changed. <laughs> nothing has changed. It has seen traffic ever since. On that day, they estimate that 100,000 pedestrians walked over. And the interesting thing is that those pedestrians paid 10 cents to walk over the bridge. There has always been a toll on the bridge, but there used to be a toll for pedestrians. Starting at 10 cents, they lowered it to 5 cents, and then eventually did away with that entirely. Yeah, in 1940, they dropped the whole thing. The bridge was joyously received, perhaps surprisingly to Amon, thinking that it was going to be looking entirely different. Our old pal Le Corbusier um, mm-hmm. from uh, in 1947 called it the most beautiful bridge in the world. On its 10th birthday in 1941, the New York Times ran a huge celebratory spread on how wonderful the bridge was. Quote, the George Washington Bridge keeps right on being a fresh miracle to people who use it every day. There is no such thing as getting used to it. Over the next two decades here, there would be new ramps and tunnels and approaches. In 1946, two more lanes were added to that level, which would become the upper level. Meanwhile, over there in Bergen County, something very interesting, although predictable is happening, the residents who moved there and those who bought land were handsomely rewarded with the introduction of the bridge. I read one source that said it was they added a collective $1 billion to business and home values just around that area. The population there boomed on its way to becoming what it is today, the most populated county in New Jersey. A unique feature that's, uh, that still calls itself home at the very top of one of the towers Debuted in 1935, unfortunately, with the death of the humorist Will Rogers and the pilot Wiley Post, they died in a plane crash in Alaska that year. They were hugely popular figures, and so as a memorial that year, a red and white airplane beacon was placed on top of the Manhattan Tower, and they call it the Will Rogers and Wiley Post beacon, and airplanes still use this beacon today to guide them as, they, as they're flying over the United States. Nice. You mentioned that they added two more lanes of traffic to the only deck. To the only existing deck, yes. Right. But even with that, the bridge was simply too popular. Everybody wanted to get across it. So luckily, Amon had already envisioned that his bridge would be built with a lower level. So he had already worked that into the original architectural designs and made it very easy, quote unquote, to snap in another roadway underneath the existing roadway. Of course, it wasn't really that simple because you'd have to build all of the other on and off stuff and um, change certain designs, but still... Well, didn't they think about maybe building another bridge instead of just stacking stuff on top of the old one? (laughs) They did talk about it, yeah, constructing one in the 1950s that would have crossed at 125th Street. That would have created all kinds of chaos as well at 125th. It would have just wiped out (laughs) a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So 
And as a technical correction, they weren't stacking it on top. They were adding a new level below Below. it. Yes. And that's an important distinction because it was kind of hidden from the design. The entire structure is so massive that you don't really see that lower level. It was constructed from 1958 to 1962, Mm. during which time, during the four years, traffic was never stopped on the upper level. Because, of course, there was flawless planning. I love all this flawless planning. <laughs> Again, it's a hallmark of Amon, who, by the way, since I just brought up his name... And has Amon Joy. <laughs> since you brought up the candy bar and I brought up his name, I should mention by this time that he has made a lot of bridges in the New York City area, including the Bayonne Bridge, the Triborough, the Bronx Whitestone, the Throg's Neck, and of course, here in this decade that we're in now, the 1960s, probably his crowning achievement, the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. Interestingly, that one doesn't have a pedestrian walkway. Well, one main difference in my opinion, is on the George Washington Bridge, he was not working with Robert Moses, which, of course, he was over on the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, and he was no fan, necessarily, of of convenience for pedestrians or bikers. Amon and his son, Amon. Have I been saying Amon? (laughs) No, no, you just started saying it. Amon. Amon is a country. After the Verrazano, he went on to still be involved in other projects because he was consulting. He was retired from the Port Authority, but he was still consulting on bridges all over the city. Into his 80s, he was still consulting. Working with his sons, Working with his son, that's right. And, And so in 1962, when this lower level was opened, he was still involved in that process as well. But they didn't just add the lower level, right? No, they had to, right, do the new, the roadways. They had to get on the lower level. Right. Well, they had to get on the lower level, and they then had to get on the the upper level in a different way, because Mm -hmm. on the Manhattan side, there was a tunnel that would take people from basically down around the Henry Hudson straight Mm -hmm. up into Mm -hmm. it. That no longer worked, and so they had to re-engineer a couple different things. The tunnel is still there, by the way. It's blocked off at both ends. Again, this brings us back to the ripping down of neighborhoods and blocks. To compensate many of these people who had lost their apartments, they built four giant, very modern-looking towers on top of the bus station, which is at the base <laughs> oh, of... Now, right. now listen, this was this was like chic and cutting edge at the time, but there's a bus station as well that's part of this uh, that opened in 1963 that is used for com- commuters, of course, every sure, day to cross there. back mm-hmm. and forth, very much in use. And part of this whole project was also building these four giant apartment towers, which we think about now with 21st century concerns about pollution and the environment and noise health and things and like safety. that help to not be ideally placed but i think at the time it was seen as very chic to be right above the the entrance to this amazing bridge well, you get wake up every morning and get to see the george washington bridge out your window who could complain with that well wake up during the night <laughs> and hear the traffic coming off the george washington bridge on the jersey tower since 1948 on major american holidays they have flown a giant American flag. The largest free-flying American flag in the world is hung from this bridge, 90 feet long and 60 feet wide. The flag weighs the current flag because mm-hmm. it's not you know the same flag. I'll, I'll they have to they be replaced. <laughs> yeah. But the current one weighs 450 pounds. 
They've never had any, like, it's never been, like, ripped apart or ripped off the bridge because that's what happened at the Verrazano. The difference is, I guess, the wind that hits the bridges is quite different. Well, they they still are concerned about the wind and they don't fly their flag on holidays when there's a high wind. Okay. Well, the thing that I find most beautiful, especially at night, obviously, is it has an amazing light show set up. I mean, it looks like a a jeweled diamond necklace or something. Right, sparkle the mm-hmm. sparkly lights. Before, during the 20th century, the bridge was lit by giant floodlights um, from below. But for the millennium, they got all fancy and I think took a few cues from the Eiffel Tower, mm-hmm. which it does kind of resemble in certain it ways. Has a hint of Eiffelness to it, it's yeah. Steel quality. They installed 380 thousand light light bulbs inside. Uh, the bridge, so that they could flash on inside the bridge, which gives it a certain sparkle. Now, on a sadder note, it has a more of a macabre reputation, like the Golden Gate Bridge, in terms of people going there who are very distraught and ending their lives. Right. It's unfortunately one of the um, most popular, I hate to use that word, places in the city for people to commit suicide. There were 43 attempts in 2012. I think only the 12 or 14 actually died. Mm-hmm. These are not reported. You know, they're not made, they're not big public affairs. And you'll rarely read very much about them in the press. But that was not the case on September 22nd, 2010, when a Rutgers University student named Tyler Clementi jumped to his death which raised the issue to a national level of cyberbullying, which is something that the country is still grappling with. Now, switching gears, Greg, at the beginning of the show, you mentioned the current controversy surrounding the bridge. And in fact, the other governor, the other governor, the current governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, on September 9th through the 13th of 2013, so roughly six months ago from when we're recording this now, Two of the three toll lanes uh, from the Fort Lee entrances to the bridge were closed for construction without any kind of notice given to local officials or to emergency officials. These closures were ordered by people who were serving as aides or appointees of the governor of New Jersey. And it suggested that they were ordered as political payback to the mayor of Fort Lee. This story is still developing. We don't know really anything (laughs) other than that. But now having told the story and realizing the amount of traffic that goes on the bridge and the importance of this bridge, those events now have another level of intrigue to me. So I'm interested to know how that story unfolds throughout the next coming months. But I want to leave us on one tiny thing that's not on the New Jersey side. We're going back over to the New York side. Mm -hmm. We're going to go off the bridge, somewhat close to the anchorage in Fort Washington Park, to a very small little red lighthouse. A magnificent little red lighthouse called the Jeffrey's Hook Lighthouse, or we just call it the Little Red Lighthouse. It was actually built in 1880, used in Sandy Hook, New Jersey, then moved to this area in 1921 to aid with passing vessels. Now, the bridge will be here 10 years later, and of course, is luminescent itself. And so, but there's no need for this little lighthouse. Something about this dichotomy of gigantic bridge, tiny lighthouse, inspired the author Hildegard Swift to write the book 
The Little Red Lighthouse and the Great Gray Bridge. It was a cl- it's a classic children's novel from 1942 about a lighthouse with self-esteem issues, worrying that it's not valued when this great big bridge is built, but um, there's a great moral that happens and the world can accommodate them both. Of course, in 1951, there were, in fact, plans to get rid of the Little Red Lighthouse. And so, in fact, it was in peril. But how was it saved? Not by preservationists, necessarily, which would, of course, be the driving cause for saving historical structures much later in the decade, but because of children who were fans of the book and parents who heard all about it. In 1951, the bridge was saved, Tom, by a very... Surprising source. I will quote one more time from the New York Times. The Little Red Lighthouse under the George Washington Bridge will be allowed to stay on as its role as a children's favorite. Parks Commissioner Robert Moses formally requested the Coast Guard to transfer the lighthouse to the city, acting one day before bids were due from private buyers. So, acting... On behalf of the city, Robert Moses saved the Little Red Lighthouse, and today you can still visit it, especially during the spring and the summer. Go inside of it, enjoy this little throwback of coastal New York history, as it sits right by one of the greatest bridges in New York history, the George Washington Bridge. Celebrate the fact that this city can accommodate structures both massive and small. On the blog, Bowery Boys Podcast. I'll have pictures of the lighthouse, but many, many more pictures of the GWB, including some of its construction. Also, a couple of videos. We just found one this evening of the opening with Othmar and the gang. They're at the opening of the bridge. <laughs> Othmar and the gang. <laughs> you can also join us on Facebook and join us on Twitter at Bowery Boys. If you like what we do, go to our blog and donate a little bit to our cause as we continue to improve our sound, our research, and everything that we do here on the Bowery Boys. Thank you very much for listening to our Tell the George Washington Bridge. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.